Open your Bibles up to the book of Amos. Last week I began to teach out of the book of Amos, and I didn't get completed with everything that I wanted to say. So this morning I would like to kind of combine Amos and Hosea together. And I'm not going to finish Hosea because it is broken down into two specific areas and I would like to just emphasize some things out of the first three chapters. And what this will do is what I want to try to impress upon you is that in the book of Amos while the last chapter, chapter 9 is a, a prophecy of future restoration of the nation of Israel which some of those things are occurring as we speak. The main emphasis is that they have reached the place of judgment to whereby they are as sinful as it was in the days of Joshua. Along comes Hosea, because they're not listening to Amos. And so God uses something unique and different to send a message to Israel by a prophet that gets married and his wife turns into a harlot then is sold for a slave and God says to him go buy her back in which he does well we'll lead up to all of that but the main thing that is here is that you have on one side God's wrath of ju and judgment upon the nation of people but when you understand biblically that God's wrath is not an attribute and it's not something that he wants to bring forth, he would rather have his wrath stayed so that he can manifest his love. And so there is a love in the Old Testament that I don't remember ever speaking on. We may have, but I don't remember it. And it's called Hesed love. And Hesed love is an eternal, everlasting love that God has toward his people. It's kind of like agape in the New Testament, but it's different. I actually went out to a Hebrew website, a Jewish website, and did some searching around for hesed. And this is now Jewish rabbis talking to their people and telling them that God is Hesed and that they should bring forth Hesed. And they gave some examples. They said, Hesed is a father that goes into the slums of the inner city to find his drug addicted son and deliver him from the hands of those that are handing him the needles. Hesed is the love that a mother has toward her daughter in that she finds the one who ran away as a youth and finds her and locates her and encourages her with open arms to return unto the family for healing and blessing. Now I'm not going to speak on Hesed this morning, but I want to lead up to that because the latter part of the book of Hosea is Hesed love. And when you understand Amos and Hosea together, you understand that God will not um, he will not tolerate sin. He will judge for sin. 
but he is continually crying out to his people to repent and to turn and to do that which is right because his love is available there and there for them. So that's what I want to try to get through, through to us in these two books because it gives us uh, the kind of balance that we need as Christians. It gives us the balance that we need when we're dealing with people that we should have a, a, an, a hesed, an agape love toward all men but at the same time, it's not to be some wishy-washy attitude that allows people to think that their sinful behavior is something that is acceptable in God's sight. It helps you to keep that balance from becoming too much to the left or too much to the right. So I want to emphasize, first of all, some of the things that we said in regard to the book of Amos and then blend that into the beginning of Hosea and let's see if I can get all that accomplished this morning. When it comes to the placing of the prophets, this is where we're at. This is what we've been using for every message. We have over here, we started out with Obadiah, which was a prophet to the nations. And then we went down to Joel, and he was a prophet to Judah. We went to Jonah, who was a prophet to the nations, in particular to Nineveh and Assyria. Nahum, which we'll get into in a few weeks, he goes back a few hundred years, or a little more than a hundred years later, he's in a different century, and he goes back to Nineveh again. Remember, Jonah got Nineveh to turn, but they only turned for a short time, and then they went back to their old pernicious ways, and so along comes Nahum, and he then uh, speaks to Nineveh and Assyria again, and then they are ultimately overcome and destroyed by the Babylonians. We'll get to that in, a mo in, in another week or so. But written to Israel is Hosea and Amos. And these are the last two prophets to speak to the northern kingdom, which is in Israel. If you look at the chronological order, our Bible doesn't give the chronological order of the way these books are laid out. But we're down here at the, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, and they're going to be ultimately destroyed in 722 B.C. They're going to be scattered and carried away captive. Now they still show up during Jesus' day. Samaria has spoken about and, and other things. And so we'll, we'll uh, tie all that in later. But here you've got Jonah, and then you've got Amos. Here we, oh, Amos where we were at last week and Hosea here, and then Micah comes in also during that period, but Micah is with Isaiah dealing over with Judah rather than dealing with uh, Samaria and the northern kingdom because after 722, then it is gone. So historically speaking, that's where they are. And of course, here's the nation of Assyria that is uh, going to conquer and overcome the nation of Israel in 722, which historically is only less than 30 years away where we're at in regard to the time period of Amos and Hosea. So let's back up a little bit and let me talk a little bit about some of the things that are here that I get your minds on that. And then you'll see where I can tie in the purpose of what I spoke about in the beginning. Under Jeroboam II, which he, Jeroboam, remember, was the worst king of all of Israel. 
and now this would be his grandson or great-grandson later on as Jeroboam II. Under his period, he restored the northern kingdom of Israel to whereby they were very prosperous. They were um, living in luxury, a lot of prosperity, but at the same time, that luxury and that prosperity was deceiving because they had an attitude thinking that because they were richer and prosperous, then that was God's hand of blessing that was upon them. Remember that throughout this period, God would chasten and correct them and deal with them in various ways, and they wouldn't prosper. He was trying to wake them up to their sins. So now they're prospering. And the two places of worship that have been established by Jeroboam I to keep them away from Jerusalem, he established two places, one in Bethel, one in Dan. And the people are very, very religious. They're making regular pilgrimages to Bethel and Dan. They're going regularly to offer up their sacrifices, to offer up their tithes. If you lived in the northern kingdom at that period of time, you would have thought that spiritually wise, everything was just perfect in Israel. Their religion was a combination of both uh, Judaism or the law and a combination of heathen Baal and other pagan worships together. And they thought that was fine. You've got a lot of that today. There's a lot of things uh, in Roman Catholicism and other areas which are non-Christian that have been united and combined together. And a lot of people think that's fine. I won't get off on that, but you know what I'm talking about. It's not pure it's not the pure, unadulterated word of God. And so if you lived in Israel that time, then everything would appear like it was, it was great. But the prophets knew better. Along comes Amos. And Amos knew by the Spirit of the Lord, as well as Hosea, he knew that the nation itself had become as sinful as the heathen nations around them that Joshua put out of the land, which God told him to. It was a very sinful condition that they were living in. And so along comes Amos, and the main thrust of Amos' message is that God is not interested in religion, that religion without ethics and morals is an abomination unto the Lord. And he starts out by, he is going to, to rebuke eight different nations for their sins. He starts out with the first six being the nations that are around Israel. If you look at this map, we, we had it up last time. Israel is the northern kingdom in here and the nations that are around them, each one of them is going to be spoken to by the Lord and rebuked for their sins. I mean, if we would apply this in principle to, uh, to our life today, God isn't just going to rebuke the nation of Israel, or maybe just the church. God will deal with all nations upon the earth, and he'll deal with the kings and the leaders that have been put in power in those nations. If you have a nation in which the leaders of the, of the people are directing the nation into an area of unrighteousness, God will deal with those people. That's the principle of authority that's in the Bible. So there's a phrase, Amos 1, and we'll pick up in verse 3, the first nation that is rebuked by the Lord is, is Syria. And Amos makes this statement. For thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, 
I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. And I will send a fire unto the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Benadad. Now what he's talking about there, he's, he's saying, I'm going to bring forth judgment upon the nation of Syria. And the reason why is because they've gone forth with cruel instruments of warfare, and they have attacked the nation of Israel. And so that's what he's referring to. But he makes that statement for three transgressions and for four. All of these nations, all eight of them, that phrase is used for every one. And what does it mean? Well, we talked about it last week. Basically what it is simply saying is that God will permit a nation to exist, but as the sins of that nation multiply, they reach a point where God will no longer permit them to exist or he will no longer withhold his wrath from them. If we apply this, for example, to the United States. Now, he will use his ministry to speak to the people to turn. But you take the United States, the history of the United States. We've only been around for what, a little over 300 years or something? Um, you look at the history of the United States, and I singled out just a few things last time. Slavery and oppression of women and children would be one. I mean, slavery in this country, you had people that were purchasing human beings that had human rights, and they were using them as nothing more than property. We fought a war, not, and I'm not getting into all the political things involved in it, but the Civil War, basically, one of the main things was it was a fight over whether or not slavery should be accepted or not. And that was a human rights violation. It was. And this country paid dearly for it. I mean, you go to Gettysburg and some of the places where the Civil War uh, was fought and some of the cemeteries and do some of the historical watching of what goes on. You've got brother fighting brother and the tens of thousands of men that were slaughtered and killed and cut down. It, uh, it's hard for me to watch the History Channel and watch something like the Civil War because it is just such a heart-wrenching war that this country went through. But this country's turned from that. The 60s was another period as well as other time. There was still a lot of racism going on even under Roosevelt's administration with World War II, that the Democrats loved to hide and try to cover up. But in many, many ways, him and Eleanor never got along because she was always wanting to bring more and more rights to the uh, Negro race. And Roosevelt knew that was unpopular among his constituency of support. And so uh, it was held back. The, the Southern Democrats don't have a good track record in that area. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. But I want, I want to avoid the politics. But either way, this country suffered. This country suffered for a lot of the racism. But they've turned away from that. You don't have the racism. I know some are trying to stir it up more and more today. But you don't have the racism today that you had 50 years ago. Trust me. When I was a kid, you, it was much, much more predominant. Most of you have never experienced that. Uh, you've never seen it. I can recall as a child seeing where drinking fountains and restrooms and buses and so forth were 
only certain areas were reserved for the minority races to use and white people had all the rest. You couldn't all go into a restaurant and eat. You couldn't all go into a restroom and use it. You couldn't all go to a drinking fountain and walk up and drink it. And we lived in the north, not the south. So there was a lot of racism that went on. A lot of child abuse that was occurring and taking place. A lot of factories or sweatshops where children were being used. And on and on and on. This country's turned away from a lot of that. And that spared, I believe, that held, withheld maybe some of God's wrath. You've got other areas, I'm sure, that are still occurring. This magnification from Hollywood of sex. You can hardly watch a TV show anymore without something sex-oriented into it. And most recent decisions by the Supreme Court to legalize fornication, which is homosexual marriage, to me is another major uh, step backward for this country, much like the killing of the unborn with abortion. And so God looks at these major trends in every nation. That's what he says in, in Amos. He looks at the major trends of sin in every nation, and if they multiply and multiply and multiply that sin, and they're moving away from the law, then God will severely judge that nation. For three and for four. We got into a lot more detail last week than what I'm going to, to do. But these six nations he brings out are all around them. And he basically says to them, let me move ahead another, another slide to this one. Whoop. He basically speaks to Israel and he says in essence, because these nations have oppressed you and you're the apple of my eye, I'm going, to I'm going to deal with them. Without reading Amos, Amos 1.3, he deals with Syria for attacking Israel. Amos 1.6, he deals with the Philistines for selling Israelites into slavery in Edom. They were running sometimes across the border to get away from their enemies. And then what the Philistines would do would sell them into slavery into Edom, which was the descendants of Esau. He dealt with Tyrus for the same sins as the Philistines. He dealt with the nation of Edom for the oppression and the resentment that they were still holding on to because they were, they were from the background of Esau. And of course we talked about that in the book of Joel. Ammon brought forth cruelty to women and children. In 2 Kings 18, without reading it, he speaks about how that he would cut down the women that were with children. And he would, they would cut down children. They would they wouldn't hesitate to come into a church like this and kill everybody. They didn't care if, if in most places they would back off when it came to the women and the children. But Syria was so wicked that they'd kill all of them. Women, children, men. And if a woman was pregnant, they didn't care. They'd cut them down, they'd kill them. They were very, very uh, wicked. And so Amos basically says... To Israel, because God has made a promise to you that you are the apple of his eye and anyone that touches you, he will deal with. He's going to deal with these six nations. But then Amos comes along and says, the problem though here is that you and Judah have become as evil as the nations that God is going to deal with for their sins against you. If you look over to Deuteronomy chapter 32, basically he says in the book of Hebrew, in the book of Hosea, 
He says, basically, you no longer are the apple of my eye. That's how sinful Israel has become in uh, about 740, 750 uh, B.C. They have turned away from the Lord and from his word so much that God says to them, I'm going to, you no longer are my wife. I no longer want to have anything to do with you. I am going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And of course Israel is, yeah. 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. During the law, God said to them, if you follow me and you obey me and you do as I say, I'm going to set you above all nations of the earth. I'm going to bless you and make you the apple of my eye. Let me explain what that means. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there's a statement here in verse, verse 10. He says, He found him in a desert land and in a waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him and he kept him. He's talking here not about Israel. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Now in the Hebrew, the, the apple of the eye refers to the pupil, the center of the eye. But it also carries with it a denoting of the daughter of the eye. And what this basically means is when it says the apple of the eye is that you think about this, you dads that are here with daughters. In this case, this morning we're talking about Nate, we're talking about Dolan. Some of them aren't here to, to reflect it upon. But when it comes to your daughters, they have a special place in your heart. You go somewhere, for example, maybe you're going to go camping. Maybe you're going to go to the fair. Maybe you're going to go to some event where there's going to be a lot of public people around. And unless you've got a daughter that is just so ugly, it's, you know, un unspeakable. And we don't have any like that. I don't have any ugly granddaughters. They're all gorgeous. Okay, it's the way it is. So you know, you know, you get them out in public, and you know how young men are, young boys. You were one once, not that you were bad, but you, you still had burning jeans, and you get an eye for the girls. I mean, it comes in at, what, um, going from elementary to, to uh, junior high school. All of a sudden, you know, boys get their eyes off of things like, um, you know, Baseball and football, they get their eyes off. They start looking at the lady. You know what I'm saying. And so you as a dad, when you take your daughter somewhere and you see these guys riding their bikes, they just keep on circling around the campsite on their bicycles or you see, out, you see them out on the beach or wherever that. They got an eye for your daughter. And you know that. And you have an eye for them. You put your eye on them and the thought is, you know, it ain't going to happen, man. I mean, some people even wear t-shirts, you know. Well, we'll talk about you touch my daughter and, and you'll see what you get and they'll put a gun or something on her t-shirt. Things of that sort. Statements that are made. That is the idea that's portrayed here is that Israel is God's wife. Israel is like God's daughter. And God is watching out for her and nobody, nobody is going to touch her without him coming to their defense. And that's what he promised them. He said, if you obey me and you keep my commandments and so forth, you will become as the apple of my eye. Over in uh, Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8, 
he mentions this again, but this is in the context by the time that we get to Zechariah, they now have already come into Babylonian captivity. We're talking about both, both with Judah, and she has now, under the punishment of God, she's been scattered to the four winds. And in Zechariah chapter 2, when he's talking about a time period of restoration, he makes this statement, he says, uh, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. God has a promise. It's always sprinkled throughout the Old Testament that even though Israel turned away from what they were told was right, God is a God of love and grace and mercy and hesed, and his love toward them is everlasting. He will continually work with them and deal with them to draw them to repentance, to draw them back. But even though they've gone off into, like a daughter going off into uh, running away from home and becoming a harlot, even though a son has uh, run off and got into the hood and is addicted to cocaine and heroin, it doesn't mean that the parents have just wrote him off. No, there's still a, there's still a love in the heart of a mother and a father toward that child that is only hurting themselves to whereby if they would just take the offer and walk away from that lifestyle, the door is always open. And that's kind of what God is saying throughout the Old Testament, but he emphasizes that here, especially when it comes to the prophets. Well, now if you turn over to the book of Hosea, Hosea and Amos ministered at the same, at the same time. Amos did not minister as long as Hosea. Some say Hosea maybe even ministered as much as 60 years. That's generally not the, 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 what's the most accepted view, but scholars have felt that possibly he ministered that long, but most think he ministered maybe 40 to 45 years. And Amos didn't minister that long. He was a prophet for that length of time. But you can see in Hosea 13, uh, if I take the time and read this, you can kind of get a feel for what Hosea was talking about as far as uh, where Israel had come. Hosea 13.1 says, When Ephraim spoke trembling. Now, uh, Hosea uses Ephraim and Samaria and Israel, and I think one of the term interchangeably. So he's talking about Israel when he says Ephraim. Ephraim was the strongest tribe in Israel. But anyways, Ephraim spoke trembling. He exalted himself at Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. He was strong at one point, but when he went off and started serving Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding all of it, the work of the craftsmen, they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. They've gotten off into Baalism. They've gotten off into the worship of icons. They've gotten off into the worship of, of, of images and statues and other things. Therefore, they shall be as the morning cloud and, the, and as the early dew that passes away and the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and as smoke out of the chimney. 
they're going to cease to exist. In other words, they've reached a point where they've turned so much away from the Lord that they're going to be like the smoke out of a chimney. It comes, it goes. The dew in the morning, you see it, but then it's gone. As soon as the sun comes up, it's burned away. Well, this you're talking about a nation to whom God has promised that no one's going to be able to destroy them. They destroyed themselves. That's what they did. I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, verse 4. Thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I did know thee in the wilderness in the land of the great drought. According to their pastures, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, have they forgotten me? In other words, he blessed them and they got prospered under Jeroboam II. He, th- he, he allowed them to get prosperity restored. But when that prosperity got restored, they just kicked their religious system up a notch. And they continually turned away from him. Therefore, verse 7, I will be unto them as a lion. As a leopard, by the way, will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. And I will rend the call of their heart. The call is the, like the, the bones, the chest that is surrounding our hearts, which gives protection to that vital organ. He says, I'm going to remove that. I'm going to be like a bear. I'm going to be like a lion. I'm going to be like a leopard. Well, we're, it's not like walking through a zoo where they're caged in. You're walking out in the wilderness and... That bear, that lion, that leopard, they're hungry and they're going to come after you and nothing's going to stop them. That's what God says, I'm going to be to the one whom he says I was the apple of their eye. I will, verse 8, he says, and there will I devour them like a lion, the wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. But he cries out to them and he says, You've destroyed yourself because what you've done is polluted your religion with all of the things that the world followed after, the things that you were supposed to burn down and destroy. Because you have polluted your religion, you no longer are the apple in my eye. And now what he says is, I'm going to send forth judgment on these six nations that are around you to show you that they cannot get away with hurting you, but, and I guess I'm on the right screen, but the main focus he goes on to say is, you've become just like him. Religion divorced from ethics and morals is an abomination to God. And men are just real keen about making things just acceptable and popular and to make themselves financially more prosperous, to bring on more memberships, and on and on. I mean, can't you see that by the Catholic system that grew? It may be on its way down now, but it just grew in huge numbers. And it was not turning people to the Lord in in all the ways which it should have. But anyways, the main focus then of Amos is that religion divorced from ethics and morals is an abomination unto God. And the main message of Hosea is that Hosea wants the love from the heart of the people rather than the rituals that they can come up with. 
we're in Hosea, turn to Hosea 6.1. In the book of Hosea, like with Amos, Hosea basically says, in essence, I don't want all the religious things you can come up with. I want your heart. Hosea 6. The prophet speaks and says, Come, let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. I don't know if that's to be literal days or maybe just a period of time. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain upon the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? Ephraim, again, remember, is Israel. O Israel, what, should, what, what more can I do unto thee, is what he said. Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as the morning cloud and as the early dew. It goes away. Whatever virtue they do have is just here and gone. They don't, they don't live by uh, what God has taught them. Therefore I have I hewed them by the prophets. The prophets came in and had a message that was constantly cutting them down and cutting them down and cutting them down to emphasize you need to repent, you need to turn, you need to do what is right. I've slain them with the words of my mouth. I mean, Amos was not a popular prophet to the point, which I'll show you in a little bit over in Amos 7, that the high priest of Israel said, we don't want to hear you anymore. Who do you think you are? Get out of here. Go back to Judah. They didn't like his message. It wasn't acceptable and popular. So God says, I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And thy judgments are as light that goes forth. I desired mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. They were giving sacrifices. They were giving money into the system. They were offering up their animals. They were going through the ritual. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. They have dwelt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. As a troop of robbers wait for a man, so the company of the priests, they murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredoms of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Spiritual adultery was being committed, he's saying. O Judah, he has sent in har a harvest for thee, and when I return, captivity of my people. Now that's just a sample, but basically that is the message that keeps on coming across, is he's rebuking them for their sins, and he's about to seriously judge them. Well, the book of Amos, if we combine back together with it, the book of Amos is made up of three different discourses that come forth. The first one he starts out, and every one of these discourses, it starts out with the word hear. O hear ye, O Israel, because the prophet is going to rebuke them for their sin. In the first one, in Amos 3.1, I wrote this down to make it a little easier for us to look at it up. Amos tells Israel that God's judgment is coming and Israel's sins are the cause. 
They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They're greedy. They're, they're big on getting rich, big on making money. They don't care how they do it. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and the son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They will lend out money to help people and take a pledge of their garments and then turn right around and instead of giving those garments back to them like the law said that a man should not be without his cloak overnight, they will hold on to that cloak and take it into the temple in worship to just kind of flaunt the extra riches and wealth that they have to try to impress people about how rich and powerful and how strong they are. He says, in the house of their gods they drink wine taken as fines. Then in the second discourse, he comes along. And he describes in chapter 4 and following the sinful luxury of the nation and the worthlessness of all of their religious activities. It reminds them of the discipline them that they've had so far and how they haven't responded. And it reaches a point where in verse 12 of chapter 4, and if you turn over to the book of Amos, chapter 4, it reaches a point where in the process of him rebuking them for their sins, in Amos chapter 4, and we can actually back up, if you pick up verse 6, he says, I've given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, meaning they have had times where there was nothing to harvest. And the want of bread in all your places. Yet you haven't returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have withholden rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. And caused it to rain upon the city. And caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon the other piece. It was that where it rained not it withered. He would bring forth his judgment upon them when it came to things like that. And so he keeps on talking about what he's done to try to get them to repent. And they haven't returned. Verse 11. I've overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. And because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God. What a solemn statement. He has been judging. He has been chastening. He has been correcting. And they still don't listen. And he basically says in verse 12, prepare to meet your God. Then the third discourse, which I won't get into fully reading, but it starts in chapter 5 and goes on. In chapter 6 of Amos, he basically says here, and I'll, I've got it on the board, God said, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard from them. Away with your, the noise of your songs. I'm not listening to the music of your harps. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. They were very religious. They were very rich. They were coming up with all different kinds of neat ways to worship and serve the Lord. But God said through Amos that 
Religion without ethics and morals is an abomination. And I want nothing more to do with it. In the latter parts of the, of the book, he starts talking about different judgments that are going to come forth. He starts out with a great locust plague and a fire in which Amos intercedes and has that one stopped. Then God shows him a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? A plumb line, like if you take a string and you put a weight on the bottom and you hold that up, it'll go straight down. Well, he shows him a plumb line, which, which is to indicate that this is what is straight, this is what is narrow. Remember Jesus said that, that straight is the gate and narrow is the way. And we are, to, we are to, to not veer off to the liberal left. We're not to become so legalistic and um, so forth to get off to the right. Truth is the balance in the word of God. And yet they had gotten off into legalism, areas of it, in Jesus' day. They'd gotten off into false pagan religions in the days of Amos and Hosea. So he shows them a plumb line. He says, here's what the plumb line is. And here's Israel. All your ways are crooked. All your ways are wrong. And so he states that he's going to judge them. Then he shows them in chapter 8 a basket of summer fruit that is ripe. Now, you know, when you have a, a basket of fruit that's ripe, something has to be done with it or it's going to rot. Well, they don't want to turn, they don't want to change, so they've reached a point now where it's they are going to become rotten like fruit that is of no good, no avail. He just keeps on pounding that to them. Look at Amos chapter 7 and verse 10. He keeps on emphasizing that because he's trying to get them to repent, but they won't listen. In Amos chapter 7, and verse 10. Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam the king saying Amos has conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. And the land is not able to bear all his words. In other words this guy is a major thorn in this country. He is very very unpopular. People don't like to hear. The media for example doesn't like to hear a message of maybe things that this country was founded upon. They're progressive. I mean, think about how the media likes Trump today. You know what I'm saying? They don't like it. They don't like the idea that he's talking about this and that ought to be dealt with for uh, illegal, illegal immigrants. And if somebody took a hardcore stand on uh, what was wrong with abortion or a hardcore stand upon uh, things like gay marriage, for example. I read somewhere where one man was talking about, um, or at least this was something, well, I told you about the insurance company that sent me a letter and, and, and said, you basically better lawyer up because if you speak out against gay marriage, they can uh, come after you for discrimination. I mean, that's my insurance company telling me that. I'm not gonna, I, got, I do, I have the best lawyer the country can offer. That's Jesus. That's right. But, anyways, the message wasn't received. Verse 11. For thus saith Amos, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. Israel shall be led away captive out of their own land. And Amaziah said unto, unto Amos, O thou 
seer or prophet, go flee thee away into the land of Judah. Go eat bread and prophesy there. Get out of Israel. Go back to Judah where you belong. But don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. And Amos said to Amaziah, the, the priest, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. In other words, he didn't go to the prophet school like was set up by Samuel, and most of the prophets did when we talked about the prophets when we were studying kings. But I was a herdsman. I was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go and prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be a harlot in the city. Thy sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. In other words, your family is going to be destroyed. Your wife, she will not be destroyed, but she'll be sold as a harlot unto Assyria. Of course, it's not mentioned Assyria here, but, but less than 30 years later, this comes to pass. When Assyria comes in, and he says here that the high priest's wife is going to become a prostitute. She'll be sold as nothing more than a sex slave by the Assyrians. So he didn't shut up. He didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Don't charge me with a hate crime. <laughs> he, he said, I can't say anything but this. God said, this is your message. Go tell it. And Amos said, there's nothing I can do. I wasn't somebody that went to school and got a PhD. I was a farmer. And God said, hey, you farmer, take my voice and speak it. There was a burning from within and it wouldn't change. So these two individuals, Hosea and Amos, they go hand in hand together. Now let me back off my notes a little bit and turn over to Hosea chapter 1. Because the emphasis, like I said in the beginning of this message, is that what is coming across here is that Amos, his whole message is a message basically of doom and gloom, except for the last part of chapter 9. And they won't listen to him. The nations turn a deaf ear to him. So God does something different. At the same time, he brings out another prophet. And this prophet is Hosea. And he's going to use Hosea and his family to send a message to uh, Israel because they won't listen to what is being said here by Amos. So Hosea is basically the same. The book's divided up into chapters 1 and 3, which deal with the unfaithful wife. And 4 to 14 is the unfaithful people. Now, Hosea ministered at a time when Amos, at the same time as Amos, Israel was spiritually, politically corrupted, and on and on, which I've already said, everybody was living in debauchery. And in this message, what God does is he tells Hosea to go marry a woman that is going to become a harlot. If you look over to Hosea chapter 1, we read, 
the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredoms in departing from the Lord. Now, this gets a little sticky with some people in that did he actually go marry a woman that was maybe a temple prostitute during that day? Or did he, I mean, would God actually tell him to get involved in a sacred relationship with a harlot? And most conservatives believe that's not the case. They believe that he married Gomer, and Gomer was a good woman when he married her, but that she became a harlot later on. And I think I go with that interpretation, but it's kind of difficult to prove actually one way or another. But basically, Hosea would love his wife, even though she would soon become, become unfaithful to him, just as God loved Israel, even though she'd been unfaithful unto him. So what basically happens then is that uh, he marries Gomer, and they have three children. And the three children's names are, let me find the screen. Oop. Let me find this, where I've got this, and I'm going to try to summarize this up real quick. They have three children. And with the children, the firstborn's name was Jezreel. That's the chapter 1 of verse 4. And that word Jezreel, it actually comes from a city that is in the um, northern kingdom. I don't think I put a map on there trying to show it. But it comes from a city. It goes back into the days when Jeroboam uh, moved in and took over the ten nations, the ten tribes. And one of the tribe, one of the kings... Ahab and Jezebel's wife were very, very wicked. So God raised up a man by the name of Jehu to deal with uh, the, the family of Ahab. But even though Jehu was supposed to deal with it and, and utterly destroy them, he, it became more of a personal thing for him, personal greed involved. He got evil, and so as a result, God now is going to judge the household of Jehu. And so it means that it, now God is going to scatter and judge the past sins of something else. And so the word Jezreel, which that city is connected to, that's where Ahab built this big palace and all that, it's scattered. And so God is saying by the one child of Hosea, you are about to become scattered. And they are. The second child's name was Loru. Hama, which meant no pity, indicating that God would no longer show any mercy to his rebellious people. No more pity. What? I said no, pity. no, I said pity. Yeah. No pity. Third child was, was named Loami, which meant not my people. Like I said earlier, you're no longer the apple of my eye. So by these three children, God is distancing himself from Israel completely, saying, There's, you're not going to get any pity. You're no longer my people. I'm going to scatter you off the land. But he's doing this by 
marrying a woman and then having these children and then this woman she gets tired of the marriage life the good life and so she turns to become a harlot and while she turns to become a harlot for a while she lives a a prosperous life an enjoyable life her lovers appear to be providing for her and in reality it is Hosea that behind the scenes is providing for Gomer and she reaches a point to whereby it no longer is anything good anymore and so here now she doesn't have any more lovers she has nothing she's become a harlot she is as a type of like Israel that started out good was greatly blessed but turned to the idols and the false religions of the world and in chapter 3 verses 1 and following I'll read this and I'll close God says to Hosea alright now go take and buy Gomer back then said the Lord unto me go yet love a woman beloved of her friends an adulteress according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and for a half homer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days and thou shalt not play the harlot and thou shalt not be for another man and so will I also be for thee for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod without a teraphim and afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord in his goodness in his latter days now picture this if you will you marry a woman you have three kids with her but then she just decides that I don't like being a homemaker I don't like the you know I don't like you for a husband so she just goes off and she gets sold to some pimp and she just becomes a street harlot you know and the pimp is the one that that's money for him and so he's going to control her life and God speaks to the husband that she married that she turned her back on and says now you go and you buy her back from that pimp you buy her back and you take her back as your wife and restore that family that's what Hosea is depicting is that God says Israel has turned away from me and has become as a harlot and now my hesed, my love is going to get her back and that's what we're living in the times right now. Israel was a nation scattered to the four winds of the earth. And God is beginning to restore and draw her back. And that's the message of the God kind of love in the Bible, Hesed, that I'm going to talk about next week. I'm not going to get into it today. But that's, that's what Amos and Hosea is all about. They wouldn't listen to Amos. It was a message of doom. And Hosea is also, but sprinkled in with them both. God says, okay, they won't listen to Amos. Let's take a man to marry a woman, name his children a certain thing. And they're all going to know that his wife's a harlot. And I'm going to have her 
I'm going to have him go buy her back and marry her. And then use that to say, this Israel is how much I love you if you will repent and turn. There's a real message that's, that's there. I hope you got it. I didn't bore you. Anyways, Father, the principles that are here, they're written, I know, toward Israel. But you put in your word and through the Apostle Peter that as the prophet spoke, we should learn from these things because the same principle is one day going to be applied to the church. Father, I pray that these things haven't fallen on dead ears and it gives us the wisdom to be able to make sure that we maintain our life according to the truth and not by what is always acceptable and popular in our current day. Father, give us the ability to build on this foundation and we thank you for it in Jesus' name.